Good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, Folks at home know that we are praying for you. So we've gotten another curveball, and we continue to have a lot of those. And every time it feels like one wave has passed, another wave comes in, and this looks like it is going to be life for a while. And so we are going to continue to pray that we are faithful no matter what we're going through. And that we are supportive and encouraging to one another, no matter what we are going through. And so for all of you who are staying home to be safe, we are praying for you and we thank you that you're praying for us. For those of you who are at home because you are sick, because you have come in close contact with someone with COVID or because you have it, and I know some folks who are watching and that is the case, we are praying for you, and we appreciate you praying for us. And I just want to um, reiterate, first I want to thank you, Johnny, for uh, sharing that update, but I want to reiterate what you said, and that is a word of gratitude to you, the church, and a word of praise to God, because it has been a difficult stretch of time. And I am grateful for the ways that this church continues to be faithful, continues to be generous with their uh, money, with their time, with their resources, with their encouragement. And I would encourage you that the generosity shouldn't stop. And I'm not just talking financial. I'm talking now more than ever, we need to be there for one another. We need to be calling one another and texting one another and checking one on one another. This is a difficult stretch, and some of us are losing our energy and we're losing our patience, and we need one another as we continue to walk through this. And so I thank you for the ways that you've done that as a church. You have been faithful for these last two years, and we believe that God will continue to be faithful for us no matter what we go through. And we're, we're going to talk about that as we go through, we start a new series this morning. But before we launch into that, I want to tell you about 15 years ago, the American Film Institute, AFI, they, they sent out these ballot seize forms to different actors and directors and historians, and they invited them to vote on the most famous quotes from movies of all time. Most famous quotes of movies from all times. And these are the kinds of quotes that show up in everyday conversations, the kind of things that would show up a lot in other parts of pop culture. So other movies, other songs, other TV shows would reference these quotes. Now, this list is about 15 years old now, so I realize some, some more current stuff isn't going to show up in that, and some of our younger folks may not even know the movies that these are referencing. But I think some of the rest of you, even if you've not seen them, you're going to recognize some of these. So I want you to help me out. A little audience participation, since it's COVID, don't shout it out. We don't, don't, don't spray it. There's no need for that. You can just sort of quietly participate from your seat. But help me out. I want you to finish the quote. I'm going to start it. You're going to finish it. So number 50 on the list was from Tom Hanks' character in Apollo 13. Houston, we have a problem, right? Number 40, also Tom Hanks from Forrest Gump, 
Mama always said, life is like a... Yes, and I appreciate it. I heard the inflection from someone. It wasn't just box of chocolates. Box of chocolates. It's box of chocolates. Because you never know what you're going to get. Number 29 was Jack Nicholson's character from A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth, right? Number eight on the list, multiple characters from Star Wars, may the, and also with you. Now, that's a, that's a high church joke for any of you who grew up in a different tradition than ours. Number six on the list from Clint Eastwood's character in uh, the, or sorry, from Clint Eastwood's character in the movie Sudden Impact, go ahead, make my day. You know that one. Number five on the list, Judy Garland's character in The Wizard of Oz, Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Also, a little earlier from The Wizard of Oz, there's no place like home. And one on the list, Clark Gable's character in Gone with the Wind. Frankly, well, you get the idea. I don't know how that one ends. It's a mystery to me because I've never actually seen that movie. It's more than 80 years old. I've seen parts of it. I've seen clips of it. Maybe I've seen Clark utter that, that famous line that I don't know how it ends. But I know the quote. Even if you've never seen the movie, and I'm guessing a lot of people in here have never seen that movie, you probably know the quote. I'm seeing a few head nods saying no, and, and uh, your, your mom's going to clue you in a little later at the end. Or the Clint Eastwood movie, if you had asked me and you told me, I'll give you $1,000 if you can tell, we, tell me what movie that's from, but you can't look it up online, I would have no clue that that came from a movie called Sudden Impact. I've never seen Sudden Impact. But friends and I would quote that line on the playground. I didn't know the movie. I had no idea where it came from. I knew it was Clint Eastwood. That's all I knew. But we would find reasons to say, go ahead, make my day. And we would find reasons. I don't know which movie this one's from, Clint Eastwood. you got to ask yourself, do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? I don't know what movie it's from. But we would ask that question. Some of you were trying to shout it out to me. But we would say that line. And that's the way it is with a good quote sometimes, right? You say it. It works its way into conversation. It works its way into sort of the common lexicon. But a lot of people will say it and they don't know where it's from. They don't know the context. In fact, they'll say it, but they'll, they'll, they'll switch words slightly because they, they get part of the quote, but not the full quote, or they'll paraphrase the quote. That's, that's how these good quotes are. They, they take on sort of a life of their own, sometimes outside of the context in which they were first uttered. Which brings me to another question. If I were to ask you what you thought was the most quoted verse from the Bible, what would come to mind for you? 
So in an American Christian context, probably John 3.16 shows up in our mind more than any. For, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In fact, those of you of a certain age will remember, for some weird reason, someone wore a, a rainbow wig in the end zone of football games, and they would hold up just a sign, John 3.16. And you would see it at football games all the time, John 3.16. But if I were to ask you what was the most quoted verse and we were at a funeral, well, you might have a different answer. Probably the 23rd Psalm. Right? The Lord is my shepherd. But if we were at a wedding, you'd probably say the love chapter. Right? 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. Or if you grew up in a different church tradition where you said the Lord's Prayer every Sunday, it might be the Lord's Prayer for you. And those of you who grew up in a church of Christ, it might be Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me throw in one other addendum to that question. What do you think is the most quoted verse from the Bible in other parts of the Bible? What verse in Scripture has other priests and prophets and biblical authors continue to circle back to it and quote it and paraphrase it and take part of it but not the whole? Well, I won't make you guess. Open up to Exodus 34. And we're going to look at verse 6 and 7. And you'll see it on the screen behind me also. As he passed in front of Moses, or and he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining steadfast love to thousands or the thousandth generation and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. These verses, these words are quoted more than 25 times in other parts of Scripture. And you heard a partial quote when Luke got up and read for us from Psalm 145. And you're going to hear a partial quote when Anna gets up and reads from Psalm 103. And in the Psalms, it's that first verse. It's the celebration of the graciousness and the steadfast love of God, the, the God who is slow to anger the God who is faithful. In Numbers 14, the people have messed up. And Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. And Moses obviously feels confident to intercede on their behalf because he knows, he says, that God is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The prophet Joel in 
urges the people in this great quote, rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just go through the outward show. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord. And why is Joel confident that they can return to the Lord despite everything they've done? Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, I'll come back to this one in a minute, but my favorite quote actually shows up in Jonah chapter 4. And I'll talk about this one in a little more detail later in this series. But when Jonah quotes this verse, Jonah is not happy to quote this verse. He's bitter when he quotes the verse. Because guess what? The verse about God's compassion and graciousness, the one who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's not just applying to the people of Israel. Jonah's bitter because it's applying to his bitter enemies, to Nineveh. And Jonah's throwing a fit about it. Man, I knew I shouldn't come here because you're gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, even to these jerks. What is it about the character of God that is revealed in these verses? As prophets and priests and biblical writers continuing to circle back to it, to throw themselves into it, to celebrate it, to remind God of it in conversation. In these verses, God chooses to pull back the curtain to reveal something essential about who He is. These are my true colors. This is the essence of who I am. This shows you what kind of God I am. Not just in the best of times, but in the worst of times. And we're going to spend some time each week looking at these traits of God that God reveals here and that the people of Israel keep coming back to and is also referenced in the New Testament because it shows us something so beautiful, so foundational, so essential about who God is. And I'll tell you right now, I've found the work of the people at the Bible Project. That's a, there's a website and they do some great videos and have some great articles and podcasts. And if you want to read more, they, they did uh, a series of articles about this. I found that really helpful. I'll, I'll put that reference in the e-notes, but I, I always want to uh, give credit where credit is due. They're the ones that turn me on to how many times, I knew I'd heard this first, but how many times it shows up in Scripture. And we'll come back to that. But this morning, I want to put this verse in context. So just a refresher or to inform you in case you don't know, this is showing up in the book of Exodus. And at the beginning of Exodus, we find the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. And there's a lot of them. 400 years has passed from when Joseph went to Egypt and helped the people of Egypt and his 
family not so big at the time survive a famine. And now at the beginning of Exodus, there's a lot of Israelites in Egypt. And the leaders of Egypt long ago forgot why they were there. All they saw was this massive group of foreigners, even though they had been there for 400 years. They were still treating them as outsiders, as foreigners, and they enslaved them. And it was in a, a bitter slavery that they were going through. And so the people of God cry out to God for deliverance, and God hears them, and God has compassion on them. And a long story short, God delivers them with a mighty hand. And so God leads them into the wilderness, eventually to the promised land. But God wants something more in this relationship. Their liberator, yes, but He's looking for something deeper. He's looking for a connection. He's looking for a commitment. He's willing to covenant with this people. But in covenanting with this people, He says, I want partners. I want to bless you to be a blessing to the world. I want to pour out my blessings through you so that all the world would know me and be blessed by me. So they've been three months into the wilderness and they camp at the base of Mount Sinai. And in 19.5 of Exodus, this proposal to Moses to share with the people, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then Moses goes and relays God's covenant proposal to the people. Click accept if you agree to the terms and conditions. And they're like, we accept, we're in, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so God is like, that's fantastic. Moses, you come up on the mountain with me. People, you stay here. You can relax in the waiting area. I'll walk Moses through more of the details of what I'm thinking. And then he'll come and share with you those details. And then you'll get to agree again. You can do the DocuSign thing if you want. But you'll get to sign up. You'll get to commit. So that leads to Exodus 20. And the Ten Commandments. And then a couple more chapters and some more instructions. And in Exodus 24, Moses comes back down the mountain and he catches the people up and he shares the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the other details, and once again they click accept on the terms and conditions. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. By the way, if you read this story, you will see that if Moses was wearing an Apple watch, he would have gotten a tremendous amount of steps in because he's doing all kinds of cardio, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. Well, they agree in 24, God like, it's up the mountain time again. So Moses goes up and the people stay down and God starts giving more instructions. And long about chapter 32... People start looking around, and they're checking their watches, and they've, they've not gotten in their steps. They've just stayed put. And Moses has been gone a little while. Forty days and forty nights, a really biblical number that he's been up on the mountain. 
And they get a little antsy. And then they get an idea. And so they take their idea to Aaron. Come, make us a God or gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, you know, he was great for a time, but we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. Interestingly, the same gold that God was instructing Moses while they were on the mountain. Hey, you, you give that for the tabernacle. They're like, hey, we'll give that to build this thing. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. So it's, it's interesting to me to read this and try to figure out exactly what the people were thinking. Were they thinking that they're shaping a new God or a representation of a new God? Or do they think they are shaping this idol, this representation of Yahweh God? Aaron is certainly steering it toward the latter. Hey, this isn't new. This is just, this is the God who did this for you. But either way, right off the bat, they're breaking the first several commandments that they just agreed to. Whether it's the no other gods, or making idols, or abusing the name of God, taking the name of God and using it in a way, applying it to an object that is not God. They're, they're already breaking the covenant. This is launching missiles into a crowded city right after you signed a ceasefire. This is open infidelity just a few weeks into a new marriage. And God is understandably heartbroken and angry. And so a big discussion takes place between God and Moses. Will God stick with the covenant commitment that He made with Abraham and He's contended uh, continued with Abraham's descendants to this time? Will God continue with that commitment to these people? Or will He just start over with Moses? And not surprisingly, God in the end chooses to be faithful even when they've just been faithless. Because that's who God is. That's the character of God. It is often when things are the most difficult, when we've experienced the most disappointment, when people around us have not at all acted in fidelity or in justice or in love. It is often when we show the true nature of our character. And God says, I'm going to show you the true nature of my character. Moses makes an interesting request. Moses says, show me your glory. And God agrees, I will show you my glory and I will speak my name over you. And you may recall that this is the time when God instructs Moses, okay, I, I want you to go 
in the cleft of a rock, in a, in a crevice. Maybe it's an entrance to a cave. And I'm going to pass by and I'm going to cover you with my hand. And you can't look on me on my face and survive. No one can. So I'm going to pass by and you'll only see the back of me as I pass by. And that finally happens in chapter 34. And I used to think when I heard that story and when I read that story, that it was that grand visual that God had in mind when Moses requests that God shows His glory and God says, okay, I'm going to show you my glory at least as much as you can take in. But I've started to rethink that maybe that isn't the essence of the glory of God after all. That this fantastic flyby, as impressive as it was, is not really the essence of God's glory in a nutshell. The ultimate glory of God that God reveals in this passage is not what He shows. It's what He says. Or it's that He shows who He is. Which is not in the spectacular. At least not the way I used to think of it. It's in the steadfast love. And compassionate. And gracious. And slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. When the prophets retold parts of this, when they quoted parts of this, when they paraphrased parts of this encounter, what do they celebrate? It's, it's not the visual. It's the character revelation of who God is. Even when the people were at their worst, God is compassionate when we are going through the full mess of life. That's the character of God. And sometimes it's the messes that are out of our control, and sometimes it's the messes of our own making. And God says, I am a God who is compassionate. God is gracious. Not just when we are at our best, but especially when we are at our worst. And that's a message I need now more than ever. When we are going through yet another wave of COVID, and with it comes an even greater wave of the COVID crazy that goes on all around us, and it keeps welling up inside me when I think we've passed some threshold and we're moving forward and then we take a step back or two steps back or ten steps back. And I struggle again with patience. And patience with people who are approaching differently than I am. And I struggle with compassion myself and indifference. I struggle with the judgmentalism that wants to bubble up. God is slow to anger. 
which is in stark contrast to how a lot of people are acting these days. God is over with steadfast love. The never leave you kind of love. The stick with you through the worst of it kind of love. God is faithful even when we are faithless for better or for worse. Even when covenants are broken almost immediately after they were made. And yes, God will deal with sin. God is going to right the wrongs, going to bring justice in every generation where it's needed. And we'll talk through that last part of this phrase a little later to the third and the fourth generation. But I want you to just notice something now. And this is something the prophets keep coming back to as well when they reference these verses. What's of greater significance to the third and fourth generation to the thousandth generation that the steadfast love keeps marching on. When God chooses to reveal Himself to us, this is what He shows. Compassionate. Gracious. Slow to anger. Abounding in steadfast love. Faithfulness to the end. So I want to invite you over the coming days and weeks as we engage more deeply in the message that we learn in this passage. I want to invite you to pray daily this simple prayer. Lord, Show me your glory. But here's what I would encourage you to do. As you open your eyes to see, don't just look for the spectacular. Or at least not in the way that we sometimes think. Look for the spectacular in the steadfast love that is new every morning. Don't just look for the miraculous, at least not in the ways that we sometimes think of that term. Look for the miraculous in the mercy that goes with us every day. Every morning, I would invite you to pray that simple prayer as you wake up, as you get out of bed. Lord, show us Your glory. And my prayer as a people of faith, is that as we launch into this new year, the glory we see of this compassionate and gracious and loving and merciful and faithful God is the glory that we would then share and show to those around us.